Hello and welcome to That Band Life. I'm Jeff Young. And I'm Bobby Lambert, Director of Bands at Wando High School in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. That Band Life, a podcast about making our careers as music educators more fulfilling so we can be happier, healthier, more productive, and more creative. Today's podcast is an interview with one of my favorite people and one of the most talented people I've ever met, Mr. Jay Bocook. Can't wait for that. But before we begin, I want to tell you about our dynamic marching shop. This podcast is coming to you ad free. And one way you can support us is by visiting our website, dynamicmarching.com and sign up for some or all of our awesome courses and instructional videos. You can also purchase products through our store at some of the most discounted prices on the web on things like shoes, rifles, podiums, megavoxes, flagpoles, all that good stuff. I know that many times you continue to order your products from the same people every year, but if you look at our prices, you might change your mind. We even offer deeper discounts on large orders. So please give us a chance and uh, check it out. Just go to dynamicmarching.com. Bobby. Jay Bocook joins us in the, in the studio. (laughs) That is our offices somewhere. Living color. Right, right, right. It's fun. I was doing some research on Jay, you know, Jay, for those who don't know, has worked with Wando since well before my time, back when Scott Rush was here, and he's arranged for for us for a long, long time. And when I got the chance to come here, that was one of the selling points. You get to work with Jay Bocook, and I was really excited about that. And so I was kind of looking up some. I didn't realize you inherited that. I didn't. I, I figured you just brought him on when you got there. <laughs> well, if I had been smart, I would have. Um, you know. But uh, Scott was smarter than I was at that point. And uh, Jay, Jay will have to tell you how long he's been at Wando. I think it's probably close to 20 years now um, at this point, uh, because I know it's been 10 with me. Uh, but it was, it was interesting. I was looking up some things. And if you go through the catalog of pieces that he's arranged, composed, uh, transcribed even, it's just monumental. And then you go, he has a Wikipedia page. Usually when you look up band directors and they have a Wikipedia page, it's usually not a good thing. But Jay <laughs> Bocook, of course, being the talent that he is, absolutely does. And Jay, there are things on here that I didn't quite know. I didn't know that you went to Furman. You, did, you, you started at, at Furman University. Is that right? Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. And then, then yeah. went uh, down to Louisiana to do your master's degree. What did you do your master's degree in? Right. I did it in education with a minor in composition. So were you kind of, well, I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me finish the introduction because I'm so excited to get no, into yeah. this. I don't, I don't know. I don't know the backstory here. So yeah, well, th- this is, this is really cool. Like this is the thing that I knew of uh, years ago. There's a little school up in the Northern part of the state called Traveler's Rest, Traveler's Rest High School. And it was kind of a sleepy little town. And then all of a sudden they come up and win the 3A state championship. And everybody's like, what is happening here? And there's this young director named Jay Bocook. Well, not only is he doing that at the same time, he's also working for a couple of the Rangers and, and has his stuff published in, at the time, very well-known uh, publishers. And so records were going out and tech cassettes with, with all this music that came from, from Jay. And then he started doing things for drum corps. Um, and I, I'm not sure exactly who his first, was it maybe Blue Nights? Was that the first drum corps you arranged for, Jay? Actually, it was Spirit of Atlanta was the first one. Well, I, I know, with. like, the, we, we know you're working with Cadets and Blue Knights and Spirit, but there are even like the right. Reading Buccaneers. There's some of the, the, the different class right. cores that I know you've arranged for as well. He's in the DCI Hall of Fame, member of the SCBDA, the South Carolina Band Directors Association Hall of Fame. Uh, 
in the American Bandmasters Association, which that's a persnickety group there. <laughs> so, as, as you know. As, as, as I know. do know. Yeah, exactly. As, as I got in. But then. Isn't, then, isn't it cool that we're all in the ABA? Oh, oh wait, never mind. I'm not. <laughs> I was going to say, I hope nobody from the ABA hears me because I'm not speaking disparaging. You know, if no. it's like a kind of a black ops group, but nobody from there is going to listen to this. Let's be serious. I'm not, I don't have delusions or grandeur, but Jay, Jay, taught at the, <laughs> Jay taught at high school, then went to Furman and took over as, as director of bands. Was it, was it that jump there, Jay? Uh, actually, no. I uh, When I left teaching high school, it was to go to the publishing company, to Jensen Publications, oh. to be their director of band publications in Milwaukee. And I did that for two years and then went to Furman as director of bands. Wow. I, was it very common for band directors to also be writing and arranging simultaneously back then? It was just starting to become a thing. Uh, I mean, it's always kind of always been a thing with published music. Most people who have published marching band music were at one time directors. And and that's how I fell into it too. I, uh, without you finishing the intro, Bobby, uh, basically when I started, when I, as a college student, I was a music education major. I just wanted to be a band director. Uh, mm-hmm. But then I, then I got the bug for writing. Um, and I'd started writing when I, even when I was in high school a little bit and fascinated by it and, a little more by the time I was at Furman as a student, I was writing bands for for the Furman band. I was writing our shows as when I was a student there because the style was just changing. Uh, mm. You guys probably don't even remember that, but it, we were going from, you know, a, a very different style of high school and college marching band pageantry basically turned into core style in the, in the seventies. Uh, and that that was the time where I was doing this. And my high school band at Largo High School in Florida was one of the first bands to to do the new core style, if you will, and be successful with it. And so that's what I grew up with. That's what I was used to. That's how I learned to write was by, you know, I I would go to drum corps shows and see those and just get blown away and say, why aren't bands doing this kind of stuff? Mm -hmm. And so I started doing that kind of stuff. One thing led to to the next. By the time I got out of grad school and I was a first year teacher, I was getting letters from publishers going, we've heard your stuff and we, can you send us a portfolio of your material? I said, well, I've only got five or six things I've ever done. They go, I don't care. Let's do it. So I finally got picked up by a brand new company, Jensen Publications. uh, And their main writer was the the, the acclaimed John Higgins. Uh, He was Mm -hmm. one of the, he was one of the administrators of the company. He got a hold of a record we had made in grad school of my charts. And he said, I don't want to see him. I hear him. I want to hire you. And so I was a first year teacher and immediately got hired to be, uh, to write, publish marching band charts. And I, wow. so, so I, I was just in the right place at the right time. Absolutely. Uh, uh, well, the right amount of talent. there yeah. it is. And, and I can tell you, here's, here's Jay Bocook's gift two of them number one he does what he says he's going to do always uh number two his ears are ridiculously good i mean yeah. it like he'll come in and listen to us and we're doing like some ninth 13th chord he was like oh seventh you gotta that's not that's not it you gotta you can just tear it apart and he may or may not have written it that's the that's the thing that i love about it it's it, it's really cool it, it it's 
It's incredible. So you're, you're, you're then how many years did you teach high school? I only taught high school for three years. That, uh, I thought it was very quick. Like you, you kind of brought them out of nowhere and then you were off to do the publishing stuff. Yeah. I, I, I had no desire to leave. We were just getting started. I mean, I know. by the end of that third year, that band at Traveler's Rest was, was terrific and, mm-hmm. and only promised to get better. But then when I got the call from Jensen, you can't say no to that. I mean, I followed <laughs> John Edmondson in the job, you know, it's like, yeah. and I was 25 years old. You know, of course I was going to do that, you know, and, but you and got, you got a, to Milwaukee. No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I go got ahead. to Milwaukee and that was a great time too. If you remember those albums, those marching band albums that came yeah. out in the early eighties with the live recordings and the state of the art yeah. series and all that stuff, I, I was able to, to do all that stuff. The, wow. A lot of those were my ideas and they were crazy at the time, but I was a young kid and they said, why not? Let's try it. We'll try to record a marching band outside and you know, the rest is history. Those were extremely popular years for the company. Yeah. It, within two years, it was the number one print band company in, in the world. Uh, and I stayed with them all those years until then Hal Leonard purchased them, uh, purchased uh-huh. Jensen. And they used both names for a few years. And finally now, since about, I don't know, maybe about two, since about 2000, it's just been called Hal Leonard, which is fine. It's all great. So I've worked well, with I the same if, people it, in publishing all those years. I bet if if any of us go into our library, you're going to find it's usually a bright red cover with black letters and and italics at the bottom. J E N S E N. Am I right about that, Jay Jensen? S O N. S O N. Excuse me. Yeah, that that seemed a little fuzzy to me, but like I remember seeing tons of those in 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 every library I've been in because they're they're great and they stand up. I mean, the horse and different things like that. Different things like that that are in there. It's just it's it's really cool. So you what what made you decide I'm I want to go back I want to do college teaching. I want to go do that instead of what you're doing in Milwaukee. Well, it was my alma mater and I had such a great experience there and I knew there was great potential for a small liberal arts school. There's mm-hmm. always been great potential for great music at Furman and it has a history of it. And to be asked to, to come back to be the director of bands, I still I was still young, I still had the energy. Yeah. So I said, why not? And so mm. I did that for seven years. And then the writing had become so big at, by that point. And then the drum corps thing happened. I left that job and just freelance wrote for 11 years. And wow. those were, those were great years. That, those were my early years with the cadets and, uh, and the great successes that they had and we had together and, and just really getting my composing chops better and better because I hadn't had much time to do it when I was teaching. Mm-hmm. Uh, so those 11 years were just terrific. And then in 2000, Furman called me back and said, would you consider coming back? Wow. So I said, well, okay. And, you know, I'd done the writing thing for a long time. And uh, it, quite frankly, it was nice to have healthcare paid for it. <laughs> as right. opposed I, to doing it yourself. That's so, right. So I, you know, I did that for 23 years and stayed at Furman and continued all the writing. So, and then finally retired a year and a half ago. So yeah, now well, I'm just, I, I, do, you, do you consider yourself like when it comes to uh, composition and, and how you kind of got the bug for composition, was it like you were really into like studying the art and craft of it, or could you just hear things and it, you just got, it just came out of your brain and onto paper? Like what? 
I, it was it was really the years that when I was the two years that I was at Jensen Publications, interacting with those composers, Claude T. Smith, Eric Osterling, all these Jim Curnow, all these names that are you know in the business. And I was on the phone with them, talking chop every day. And wow. I was like, you know, and I had minored in composition in, in grad school. I had taken a lot of classes, done a lot of projects, uh, but they weren't mainstream projects. You know, when you're in college, you're writing out there stuff. At least in those days, it all sounded like yeah. fingernails on the on the chalkboard. But uh, once it, I got to hang out with these guys every day and talk with them, and then people say, "Why aren't you doing more of this?" And I'm like, "Well, I really don't know why I'm not." You know, mm-hmm. and then one thing led to the next, and a commission here and a commission there. And it, it, but to answer your point, it wasn't. It, it was the, the 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 art and the craft of it really was was what turned me on to it so much is the nuts and bolts of how it all worked and how themes were developed how they how counter melodies were developed really fascinated me and always has jay you you had mentioned you were talking about that time with cadets in there and am i right did you follow jim prime no there? michael klesh did a few years michael klesh did me. a few years but the the so the idea, if you, of course, we all are pretty familiar with Michael Klesch. If you don't know the name Jim Prime as an arranger, you need to. There are some right. amazing things that happened there. So the cadets, especially in that time, it was vitally important that they have great music. I, th- I think that's fair to say. Uh, yes. In that in that time, it the music was all important, and we'll we'll build a show off of that. What was it like in that creative process in those years? Well, it it was fantastic. I mean, you know, I'd done Spirit of Atlanta for a few years, and then I, and then for a couple of years, I didn't do any drum corps, and I really didn't care. It was it was fine. Uh, but then when the call came from the cadets, I was like, "Oh, that's the one place that I love what they're doing musically. Mm. I love. I mean, they were tackling Jeremiah and all this great Bernstein and Copeland stuff at the Copeland Third Symphony. I mean, people weren't doing that." Uh, and right. they were, and, and that, that was, that was, bam, I was sold. Uh, and so for my first day there, through all those years, the creative process has been great. It's so sad what happened to them last year. Sure. We'll, we'll hope for the future, but it doesn't take away that great heritage of the past and being a part of that, that process with those creative people, with Mark Sylvester, uh, and on and on and on. Uh, people putting these shows together, Tom Onks and, 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 you know, Gino Cipriani doing the brass for all those years, just great, great teachers to be around April Gilligan on, you know, just the, the names are unbelievable. You look around drum corps today. It seems like half of the, of the designers of every core were ex cadets. It just, it's just true. Uh, and it's yeah. just, it, just the, the way it was at that time, it was just uh, it's so inspirational. And, mm. And you just, it was, it was the cadets. It had to be right. It had to be right. Mm. That's why we did 8,000 rewrites to everything, you know, that right. there were t- times I wasn't too happy about that, but it had to be, <laughs> it, it had to be right. It's so interesting to hear you say you weren't even interested in doing drum corps and then the cadets called and you were like, well, I have to do that because exactly I had the same right. experience. I told George no three times. And then I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, I kind of need to do that. It's cadets. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't, isn't that interesting the way that like that, that, uh, 
it's a aura. it's a storied program. It's, it it's well, with, with no it's difference to anybody life. else. I, I wouldn't have said yes to anybody else. I just wouldn't have, uh, you know. And but I couldn't say no to that. And I'm so glad I did, and it worked out, you know, for 30 years. Yeah. Um, so. Well, and then you know, you, you we can look at at Jay's arrangements for the the drum corps. If you turn your attention to uh, marching band. A high school marching band. I mean, the first one that comes to my mind is Lassiter, and right. when you when you were arranging for them for all those years, and uh, you know, to Avon, to us, uh, like it, it's it's incredible um, what happens and, and what I've and loved recognizable with. sound or recognizable the, yeah vibe to it. It's like oh yeah, that's that's Jay. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, thank you guys, but really, quite honestly, it wasn't searching out championship programs you and these guys were my friends they're my good i only wrote for my friends i I wasn't trying to solicit more accounts or more jobs i had all i needed i had my hands full doing a couple of drum corps every summer and then you know with my friends bands it just happens that a few of them were as good as it got in the country and i was very fortunate to be able to to write for those guys and continue Right. And I think the the biggest thing is because like there are times when Jay comes to our meetings, we're all like, oh, God. (laughs) All right. Like what? Because what are you going to say? And when he when he sends us, I remember making there was a it was a couple of years ago. Right, Jay, there was a closer that you sent to us. And I was like, man, I don't I don't think we're going to be able to do this. And and Jay got on the phone was like, Bobby, they can play this like (laughs) and we did. It was great. And I think that that's part of it. it. you take such an investment and hearing you talk about all this just, just solidifies that for me even more. I mean, I remember, you know, we, we, over the years, I was like, gosh, is Jay going to stay on with us? You know, he doesn't know me quite as well. And, and what's been great is I see that when you get into a project, you're all in like, it, it doesn't matter if this is one of four groups that you're writing for, or one of 12 pieces you're working on. You just seem all in where does that come from? Well, you have to be, uh, you know, and I know it's natural to think, well, you're going to, you're going to put more into the programs that are more in the national limelight or whatever, and maybe not so much with programs, that, but that's not the way music works. It's, no. it's not about that. It's about doing the, the project, right? It's just like writing an easy chart. That's maybe harder than, yeah. than writing a hard chart because when you if when you can write anything, then you can write anything. But when you can't write everything, then now you have to be even more creative. I always explain to people like it's trying to play piano with your middle two fingers of each hand taped together. You know, mm. it's it's it just as challenging. And so even if it's a pop tune I'm doing for publication, somebody will say, "I bet you knocked that out in an hour." Not necessarily. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it whatever it took to get it right is what it takes, and that's just how I'm built. Um, well, well, that's what that's actually the question I, I want, because and you may not even realize that because you say that's just what it has to be. I'm like, I don't know that all the arrangers and drill designers and composers in the audience are going like, that's just how it has to be. There's a little bit different thing. I think that that's that is how you're built. And I'm just wondering, was that something from your parents? Was that something from the Largo program? Was that something where do you think that that all in all the time kind of feeling came from? I don't know. I guess it goes back to actually my childhood. Childhood. Both my parents were musicians. Um, I grew up 
with all styles of music around me all the time. Uh, my dad wrote jazz arrangements. My mom sang for the band. Uh, we had classical albums all over the place. It, it, it just, it, I think what it did is it developed in me. And what's important when you do an arrangement is that you capture the essence of the piece. Now, how do you f define what the essence? I think that's your question, Bobby. H how do you define what the essence of a piece is? And to me, it's the thing that it has that makes you like it, right? Mm. It is it the is it the melody? Is it the groove? Is it the harmonic structure? Whatever it is that attracts you and attracts others to this piece of music, that has to be in it. You can't mm. not have that in that. Uh, if it's all the other stuff, then you've missed the essence. You know, and I think some arrangers don't quite get that. No, I guarantee they don't. Because if you, <laughs> there's a lot of really good groups out there these days that they keep jumping around so much in the piece. They they lose that essence you're talking about that this is what makes this particular piece of music impactful is that it takes you on this journey all the way to this impact point. You can't just take the impact point out of nowhere and put it in something. And yeah. I think if you look at your music and you do such a great job of taking people on a journey through the yeah. essence of that piece. Well, that that's the whole point. And it's becoming, this is a subject of a whole nother podcast of where we're headed in marching band. <laughs> Bobby and I have talked about this at length, but, and I'm not going to get into it now, but it is, it's become more difficult to write like that now because of the, 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 the competitive demands, the visual demands, the judging setups, um, it, it's just made us think about how we put shows together and which is okay. We've got to adapt. It's going to change. Uh, but, but it no longer allows for long developments. Uh, the, right. the world just is not going to have that. The visual world is not going to allow that. I'm okay with that, but there's still better ways than just all knock need throwing in different pieces just for whatever to accomplish some goal that has nothing to do with music. That's the ones that I have trouble with. So I, even though when I write for Bobby's band now, we're writing in a much different way than I was 10 years ago for that band, mm -hmm. just because of the demands that we just talked about, uh, visual and the judging demands. But it's okay. We find mm -hmm. ways to adapt to it and move, make it just as meaningful. And I think so far we've been able to do that. Mm -hmm. I can tell you that I, I, I talk with – in my coachings, I talk with people when choosing an arranger or even just choosing pieces that you know there, there are two ways that you can approach that. Some people will – whether it's concert assessment or whether it's the marching band show, they'll choose something. Well, it, it fell together really easily the first time we read through it and the kids like it. Okay. That's, yeah. that's one thing. My thing, and the thing that I think Jay is really passionate about is once you play a Jay Bocook piece or show, your band is going to be better. And that's that's the thing that I think is really unique about about the way you approach things, Jay. Like when we played your piece at, at Midwest and when I've done others, I've done Gloriana and I've done, you know, Boy's Dream. We've done several of your pieces. We start at one place. And we go through it, and there are things that don't come together right in the, at the beginning, which is good, I think, because we have to grow and we have to adapt. And so I think that's one of the things that I appreciate so much about hearing your works. Like when I hear a Jay Bocook show, I got to get my ears ready because it's I, I, I'm going to have to listen. It's not just going to be here's some candy on a table. It's, oh, 
I see what you did there. Like C flat chords and things like, like that. Oh, <laughs> don't start. Don't <laughs> don't even start it. No, don't sir. I would never consider I would never think to do that. That's like cha- challenging the individual players, challenging the sections, challenging the, the group as a whole, being in the right registers. What are some other things you think about when you're when you're putting together an arrangement? Well, it has to be interesting. It has to be interesting to the ear. It it has to be in other words it can't all sound the same. Uh, uh, that's where I have trouble with uh, people that say, no, I want my arrangements always in B flat. That, that, that really tires the ears after a while. You can't get through a whole show like that. It just, that's why the great composers of all time have utilized different key schemes when they form their pieces. So the ears don't tire, you know, repetition and contrast are the two basic elements in music. It's great to repeat something, but you have to have the contrast. And the more and the the more contrasting it is, the more interesting it is. So that's why maybe for a short period of time you'll get into a key center that's a little uh, maybe I wouldn't choose that, but it has to be that way, or the whole thing doesn't make sense. And after you play it a few times and get comfortable with it and figure it out, it's like, oh yeah, now I see why you do that. And I often have this conversation with clients when say we're going to modulate and it needs to go here. Now here's a safer one. It, most people say do the most interesting, but a couple of them have said just do the safe one, and I'm like, okay, but I'll do it if that's what they want. But that, that's where that comes from, Jeff. Yeah. I, I'm going to start this with a story. There is a question in here, but um, one time I walked into Saucedo's office, and he was clearly writing. You know, the scores on on the screen. It's dark room. He, he always it was like the Bat Cave, you know, <laughs> in his office, and. Uh, you know, he's writing somebody or arranging something for Hal Leonard. I don't know. But he had three textbooks open in front of him on the desk. And I was like, you've been doing this for 30 years. Why do you have textbooks open? And he's like, I'm always learning. You know, I'm always double checking ranges. I'm always learning this. I'm always learning something new to try to to add that to the composition. Are there any textbooks that you still refer to a lot or or, or just resources? Or is it just all second nature now? Well, no, it's, it's, you're always, you always have to keep learning. You, you have to now your experience tells you a lot, but uh, I, I totally understand that. Uh, you know, I, I taught orchestration at Furman University for 30 years. So, and, and with a passion, I love teaching that class it, because, you know, you really want to know how to write for the instruments as you go to a university Wednesday afternoon student recital. Mm. And you and you see where players succeed and where they struggle. That's how you learn instrumentation and orchestration is hearing people actually playing the instruments. What does it sound like in this range? Is this easy or is this tough for them? And until you really, you know, some people, I guess, just don't ever do that. But that's that's actually how you develop that sense. Uh, I use the Samuel Adler book for all those years. At Furman, not because maybe not because it was the best book necessarily about orchestration, but it had all the guides, all the the CDs at the time, the workbooks that made it. There's still many mistakes, and a lot. I spent much of my time looking at orchestration books, going, "No, that's not right," you know. <laughs> and I should do one myself. I know, uh, but I'm just too please, lazy to this point. Please do, yeah. <laughs> Jay, I think saying lazy and you in the same sentence is a... Oh, I can be very lazy. (laughs) (laughs) 
I, I'm you just fascinated. Netflix like the rest of us. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> yeah. I mean, if, if I tell you I'll, I'll have it, I'll have it. But right. sometimes I'm not going to tell you that because <laughs> I don't have it. But yeah. Well, it's, it's funny. Uh, I, I love how curious you are. And st- I mean, like when you think about all the things you've done, the fact that you're still trying to be a student, this, I know you and I have talked about like new compositions and new arrangers and you've, you've said things like, Oh, I really like how they do this. I don't like how they do that. But I, I, you know, and it just seems like you're always curious and always trying to learn about those things. Who, who do you think right now, who do you like to listen to? What, what fills your soul, whether that's a, a tried and true, um, orchestral thing or maybe it's somebody that's up and coming and new that you're you think they have a, a different language what 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 fills your soul well you're right i am curious that's uh, i am super curious when i listen to music to the point mm-hmm. where it's distracting uh you know it's one of those a blessing and a curse one of those kind of things I but see. like like when i go to a film sometimes i, I can't enjoy the music because i'm so disgusted at the soundtrack or Sometimes the soundtrack is better than the movie, um, and and we 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 know of both with cases of both of those. I I like to listen to the best of what I think is the best and most interesting of all styles. Uh, you know, as, in terms of there's so many new band composers. I, I I just it's hard for me to go. I'm going to be this champion of this person, this guy or this gal right now. I want to hear more. But there's a, a lot of new pieces are really interesting. A lot of new pieces are not as interesting. Um, I, I, we're, we're, we're getting into a place in composition where the story is becoming as important or more important than the notes. And that scares me. To me, the story is in the notes, not in the story about why you wrote the notes. But it's easy for us in, in this day and age to get fascinated by the story around the piece. And it sometimes gets, like I said, it becomes more important than the actual piece itself. You know, I used to have a thing when I was talking about guest conductors like at Allstate or whatever, who you'd have come in, or guest composer come in, and when they you bring them up to discuss their new piece that they just wrote, if their discussion of the piece is longer than the piece, then that's not a real piece. <laughs> that's just, that's a yellow flag right there. If you talk longer than the piece is about how good it is, then you're out. So, you know, to me, it's about the notes, not about the story around the notes. I don't know. You I, heard I, it here, folks. Maybe I'm the curmudgeon. I guess I am, but. No, no I don't. What you're saying, but like when you design a story for film or for writing, it's a different formula than composing. I, I've never composed a piece of music. I've done storytelling through video before, you know, and, and planned out, you know, all of that, but it's a totally different process. That's not, that's not what I'm saying at all. I, I understand that. And, and, and when you're writing music to a film score, it has to be around what the story needs to needs it to do. But I'm just saying there is a, and I'm not the one that came up with this word, but the, the, there is, you know, film music, for so long was light motif driven. You know, it was like, okay, Darth Vader, that's his tune. You could always identify when Darth Vader is coming because, and, and so forth. And that started in Wagner, right? But, uh, and that's the way it was all through Williams music and James Horner and all of those guys. But the, the, the music 
the people that are writing film music now, their bosses, the people, the film people are saying they don't want those, they don't want it to be as familiar. In other words, they don't want you to predict that the bad guy's going to show up by playing his theme. They want the, the film to do that. They want the visual to do that. And I totally get that. But it, it does change the way we think about writing music for film. And that's happening some even writing for orchestral or any kind of contemporary music. Not so much identifying with themes, but with soundscapes, with images. And I totally get that. Right, I wandered okay. there a little bit. Apologize. No, no, no. Well, you, you, you mentioned a name that is my next question, and that's John Williams. And I, I don't know if everybody knows kind of the relationship that is there. I, I tell everybody that I remember one time you, you, we were talking about it and you said, well, I'll just call John and ask him if we can do that. And I remember just sitting there like I, a lot of expletives went off in my brain. Like, he's just talking about John Williams right over there. <laughs> how did, how did that come about? How did the relationship happen? And, and, and how, what is, what is that like? Well, again, this is being in the right place at the right time. Uh, my relationship, well, of course, I, I was a fan of his music like we all were when all the films came out. And I was just in awe, completely in awe of the man as a composer. Changed the world of film music forever. Um, but he, he, for one reason, really the name Paul Lavender, we all know that name at Hal Leonard. Mm -hmm. Um he worked with John and his managers back in the early days of John's orchestral publications, not his film music, but the orchestral publications of, the, of those films. They hadn't been published. And Hal Leonard, uh, for lack of a better term, won that battle with other publishers for them to be the exclusive publisher of his music, of his orchestral music. Does that make sense? So yes. even didn't matter who held the copyrights, John and his managers wanted Hal Leonard to control the print music that orchestras could buy to, and then play Star Wars. Well, that led over into the, the natural, what about a transcription idea for wind bands? There are more wind bands than there are orchestras. They want to play this music too at the highest level. And then it came down to, okay, who, and the Marines wanted to start this 205th anniversary concert in 2003, the president's own, had a crazy idea. Let's invite John to conduct that concert at Kennedy Center, and we'll do transcriptions and play all his great themes, but with the Marine band. Well, I happened to be a Hal Leonard guy, and we got the assignments, uh, and Paul, Lavender did a bunch, Stephen Bullen did some, I did some, and we put that first concert together in 2003 and then went into the Marines, you know, four days early with the rehearsals. John Williams flew in. Imagine this. This is the scariest thing that's ever, and most exciting thing that's ever happened in my life. You're in John Phillips, John Phillips Sousa Band Hall with the Marine Band. You're playing Star Wars in Schindler's List that one of these three p people at a table right in front of the podium, like sight reading judges are sitting at with the scores open and then watch John in, in walks, John Williams to conduct. And you're sitting there going, well, I did that one. What's he going to think? And, and you <laughs> yeah. know, you're oh, so God. excited. It, it's, it's the most, 
out of body experience, you know, I kept thinking he's going to turn around and go, which one of you did this one? You know, (laughs) (laughs) what were you thinking? What were you thinking here? What were you thinking here? But who did this? But it didn't happen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Which one of you did this? You know, Uh, but it, it was a tremendous success. And that's where I first met him and got to spend time with him. You know, we would sit together in breaks and just talk and he'd talk about the film scoring days and just fantastic. Well, that has happened two more times since in 2008 and then this past summer in 2023. Then in 2004, he, or 2004, he was the Grand Marshal of the Rose Bowl and they wanted to commission him to write a new national anthem to be played by both college bands with him conducting it pregame. So he did a spe- special arrangement of it, but it was for a marching band. So who'd they look to to kind of make it work? I happened to be standing there. So actually, I wrote the drill for that. You did? Yeah, he, I, he, yeah I wrote the drill just to get the two bands on the field and in the right place with the right instrumentation. Yeah. But, uh, you know, we had to have quad tom parts manufactured and stuff. You know, he wrote the, the chart, but he did you know, he, he's not familiar with those type of marching instruments. So, so I was there for four days with him at the Rose Bowl in 2004, and, you know, just sitting and riding back and forth to rehearsals in the vans, talking with him and his wife. And fantastic. So I've had several great experiences. Here's one more that I think you'll like, you know, the, for this national anthem that was being played, that all the big networks always do a pre-record in case of inclement weather like you know there's been some issues people have had with it people lip syncing and but like you think about a a presidential inauguration when it's 12 degrees outside and you're you're trying to play violins there's going to be a pre-record just for safety so in case it doesn't work out live or something goes wonky with the production they can always play the pre-recorded tape well we recorded the pre-record with members of the indianapolis symphony uh, a couple of months before the Rose Bowl. And we brought all the, all the musicians in to do it. And John was flying into a separate private airport and Paul Lavender went to pick him up and somebody had to warm up the band. I was the one that was left. I was up there. We didn't want to record. I didn't want to warm up the band on his new version of the national anthem. I wanted him to rehearse that. So we, they're like, well, somebody said, well, let's just break out Raiders March. So, Okay. We start playing. I'm conducted along Raiders March. We're warming up. And then John comes walking in the room while I'm conducting Raiders March with this. And he's just waving like, I was like, I, I thought I was just going to faint right there. But that was a great story. Did he come up and give you some conducting hints? or? <laughs> no, no, no. He went out immediately, rehearsed the piece. Great. Got a great recording. Uh, so, and, and I think they use some of the pre-record um, in, in the national broadcast because you can imagine with wow. two 300 piece college bands, it was pretty wide. <laughs> so I think yeah. what, I think what people heard was, <laughs> was some of the pre-record. A little bright. <laughs> <laughs> Take a little bit off trumpets right there. <laughs> Take just a little bit off the top. They put the symphonic pre-record underneath the live sweeten it up a little bit probably yeah i think they mixed mixed in both a little bit uh 
there was a great story there too at the Rose Bowl because when the Rockets red glare, they had all these pyrotechnic things that went up, but they were all cute in the music and a guy didn't read music. So Paul Abner says, I can do it. And he goes, no, you're not going to touch my board. This is a million dollar board of these pyrotechnics that go off. And he goes, why well, you can't, he said, let me just sit beside you and I'll say, go, go anyway. So whatever happened, Paul ended up firing the cannon shots, which were the, you know, in the, at the end of the national anthem. And he got all flustered in the music and ended up, didn't have the last shot. He'd already used it. <laughs> so I saw this image of Paul on the very last note, just pushing this button and it's already been fired. It's not going to fire anymore. <laughs> but anyway, true story. But I, you know, when I think about that, like the, just the collaboration with John Williams and, and the fact that John Williams is like, Hey, I, this guy is somebody who I trust with my music. I'm sure that's, that's a, that's a bond that, few of us will really understand because I can imagine whenever you write a piece of music, it's, it's like, uh, you know, it's just very personal for you. And so to say, I I'm willing to turn this over to you. I can tell people in the audience, like we, we will go out to ask for permission to arrange and, and more than once in my time here, they've said, well, we want to, we want to hear it and we want to know who's doing it. And I would say it's happened maybe five times. When we say uh, Jay Bocook is doing it, usually they're like, uh, okay, you're good. We're fine. The other two, like if I'm not mistaken, I think it was Canyon Jay that they said they wanted to hear. And they heard just a little bit of it. And it was like, oh, yeah, we're great. This is, this is The feel and essence of this is exactly what we want. So, uh, you know, I can only imagine well, I'm that. Not- but I'm going to flip it. Just No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I'm just going to say, I don't, I don't really understand the relationship either. The trust that he has working with Paul and myself and only three or four of us are are asked to do these. It's scary. I don't understand it, but I respect it tremendously. And I, I'll work like a dog to try to get it right. Just because I would never want him to go. This is not up to the level of what I expect. Then that's, and that's the reason that the relationship exists. Yeah, because I'd say you're not the only one who recognizes that, yeah. you know, very much. But then, aren't there some some composers that are like, oh, marching band? Never. Like, you can't use my piece of music for marching. There, band. there, there, there are some, but most of them, quite frankly, are for sentimental reasons, because the piece is so like the piece is just so special that they don't think it could be transformed to that. With the with the respect that it's due. For, and I'm thinking of a John William Schindler's list. Right. He doesn't he doesn't allow anybody to do his music. Well, it's really not him; it's his manager. Don't allow him. But that one, even if everything else would be good, he would not allow that to be done on the football sure. field. I'm just I mean, telling you. Yeah. It's usually right. not because they're snobs. It's usually because there's some real reason they don't think it fits that arena. And I respect yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to to mention this too, or to get to this. You also had a hand in what four different Olympics and the, the music for four different Olympics, like 84, 88, 96, 2002. You had your music played at that. Were, were, were you there or was it a thing where they just took, they played your music? Um, actually, I wasn't at any of those. And I, and I should have been at the 96 games in Atlanta, but I was doing, I was doing, I was invited. And it was the cadets. They played the closing ceremonies. Uh, the drum corps did, and 
I had a concert piece played on the opening ceremonies, but I was doing a clinic at a university that week. I had already booked that week and, and I couldn't get away. So, mm-hmm. but no, but all those were just great opportunities. They, they all involved John Williams too, because he wrote the themes to all those. And I was entrusted mm-hmm. to write the band at the event. There's always a band that plays at their events. I was entrusted to write the arrangements for those bands. I've got, I've got, I still to this day have a T-shirt that says I was there, but I wasn't. The, the, the drum corps got me one and gave it to me because they knew I was upset I couldn't be there. But yeah, Jay, I've got two more questions for you. Uh, is there? I think I already know the answer to this, but I, I think the listeners would be interested in it too. Is there? Is there a piece that you have written? that you have special ties to special feelings toward that make them kind of stand out from, from the others. Oh, that's always tough. You know, your favorite piece is always the last one you wrote because you're now Mm. done with it. You know, uh, you, you know, writing music, composing music is, is, is a tough process because you have no one to blame when you compose except yourself. When you arrange, you can, you know, I didn't write this tone. I'm just arranging it. But when you compose, every decision is yours. And there are times where you really hate yourself going through the process, especially when you can't come up with the right answer. They're very frustrating. It's easy to be really hard on yourself when you're writing. But when you finish the elation of being done and proud of the effort is... is so it's, it's hard. To, I, I have very personal affiliations with several of the pieces that I've done, but uh, it's hard to, to pick out one and go, well, this is the, you know, the one I'm most proud of. Um, so I really can't, I can't really say I have a favorite or whatever, but it's like asking favorite, Bob, I was, I, which daughter is the favorite. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I totally get it. I, I totally get that. Here's my last question. Pick one particular genre that could be marching band, could be concert literature. Heck, it could even be popular music. Tell us where you think it's going to go in the next five to 10 years. Uh, that's a tough one. Uh, but I, I tend to think it goes back to our previous discussion. I think, I think music is headed more from concrete ideals to more of a passive soundscape that envelops the experience rather than defines the experience. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of where I feel pop music is going. Um, You know, Mm -hmm. it's not as complex harmonically as it used to be. Not that it has to be, Mm -hmm. but it's certainly more interesting from a soundscape point of view. You can take the same verse exactly the same and go over it exactly 10 times now, but, but because it's produced differently every time, it stays interesting. In the old days, we'd have to write a bridge mm. to make it mm. to show the contrast. Now they're showing the contrast in color, not in substance. So mm. I, I think that's going to continue. Uh, and the electronic component is so powerful in every genre of music now. In other words, the, the production of, of what the software equipment does be, has become mm. so much more of a part of it that I think that's going to stay as involved. You know, producers are now as as 
important or more important than composers. Mm. They take a germ mm. of an idea and turn it into an eight-minute piece that'll knock you out. And it's all just by the way they manipulated the software. And so I think that's where we're going. I think if, if I was a young composer, you you got to get away from the pencil and paper and dig into the software. That's the, I can't believe I'm saying that, uh, but I think it's true. Uh, most movies now are not done on pencil and paper first. That's an afterthought. They're done on sequencers first and then converted if they need to be. So, uh, I, you know, really try to understand that side of things. That'd be my guess. Mm-hmm. You heard it. Go out there and learn Ableton and Pro Tools and all those other softwares. Yeah. Yeah. Logic. Really important. But while while you're doing that, make sure to listen to some Jay Bocook music and figure out, oh, if I have (laughs) to harmonize something. I probably want to put the third here instead of there. <laughs> That's the thing you always get. Yeah. Did you hear where they had the third of that chord? What What are they thinking? <laughs> Nuts and bolts. I just said it's all software. At the same time, it's not. You know, the overtone series is the overtone series. That's not going to change. That's not going to change. You Use it to your advantage. Learn how to score. Learn how to voice. It's all in the overtone series. It's not magic, you know. If it, if you could see my hands, and I'm not pounding the table. This is a piano. If it, if this is what sounds good, not spread out where you can't see my. Hand. This is what the overtone series does. Mm-hmm. That's how you should do it. Yeah, that's my final thought. Honestly, yeah, that's that's and that's a great one too. Yeah. We can leave it there. And, well, and Jay, we really appreciate you spending time with us today. And uh, you know, thank you so much. And um, Bobby, any final thoughts? You know, one of the things that I've loved about doing some of these interviews is we basically are saying, who are our heroes and who do we want to learn more from? And Jay Bocook certainly fits the bill for anybody that's doing, that's thinking at all about arranging, composing, anything in the musical world theory. This, this is the person that you want to listen to and contact because when you listen to his music um there's a there's a lot there and i love it because some of it is like this is fun this is cool like he knows how to make something sound fun but then if you give it a couple more listens you're like oh wait a second i that chord progression there is not what it should have been that's right i think he has all these hidden things in there that he's like i wonder who will get this because almost every year he's like hey did you hear did you hear the, the this chord that I put in there? And I'm like, gosh, darn it. I didn't catch it. But he has all these Easter eggs that are there. And it's for, I think it's when you have genius working, that stuff just happens. I don't think it's planned. It just, it just is. So Jay, I think that you're, you're, you're one of my heroes for sure. And I think you're one of the geniuses in our industry right now. And I've already paid him. So I'm not just doing this to get him to come back. <laughs> I genuinely, I genuinely think, think that so thank you so much for spending some time with us well thank well, thank you guys you're too flattering i don't deserve that kind of praise i'm just trying to do the job but it's been great talking with you i love talking about this kind of stuff and it, it was just a, a great time to reminisce and think about some of these things so thanks for the opportunity to be with you appreciate your thank program. you jay thank you jay and then until next time i'm jeff young and i'm bobby lambert and this is that band life